everybody. I'm Adam Hergenrother. This, as you know, is Business Meets Spirituality. We believe in personal growth through business success. Today, I am joined by Dr. Eben Alexander, who we just had a wonderful conversation. Actually, it's really interesting. Um, Proof of Heaven, which is the first book that he wrote after his near-death experience, was the f- one of the first books that I read as I kind of oriented my inward life, kind of really diving in, seeking for knowledge, um, particularly after Transcendental Meditation. And so I remembered it, and then it kind of came up again um, more recently. And so I grabbed the book again, I listened to it and read it, and I had him come on our show. Um, and we just had a wonderful conversation. But if you don't know who Dr. Eben Alexander is, let me read his bio because it's awesome. A pioneering scientist and modern thought leader, Dr. Alexander was named to the prestigious Watkins Mind Body Spirit List of 2020, which, by the way, alongside the Dalai Lama, Pope Francis, Eckhart Tolle, and Desmond Tutu, some pretty good names there, a list on which he appeared numerous times since 2013. Dr. Alexander has been featured in more than 400 media interviews, including ABC, TV's uh, Good Morning America, 2020, The Dr. Oz Show, Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, Larry King Now, Fox and Friends, Discovery Channel, Biography Channel, and numerous international radio, digital, and podcast interviews. But what I loved about him is that, you know, his near-death experience, he explains it, but we also get into uh, what is money. We get into, you know, what is the purpose of being here? What did he learn from there? And most importantly, what I think is really is kind of fascinating for me is how when he came back of, of realizing that this is just a, he's just a spiritual being having a mind of physical experience, he didn't become passive, right? He actually became very active and even more engaged as he talks about on the podcast about, you know, um, really sharing his message, but also just interacting with life at a larger level, which I think is fascinating. So um, without further ado, let's enjoy the show. All right, Dr. Eben Alexander, thank you so much for being here today. We're really excited. I would love to start out by talking a little bit about your history. Um, and particularly, I know in uh, in Proof of Heaven, you talk about how your your father had a kind of instrumental role in getting you into um, into the field and the career that you're in. Could you start us there and kind of maybe take us to your uh, near-death experience? Yeah, so I, that's an excellent place to start because it's important to see that kind of background stage setting. Uh, my father was an academic neurosurgeon. Uh, he was the head of a neurosurgical training program, and he was uh, probably the most influential person in my life in terms of teaching me uh, you know, how to treat other people and the way of the world. And especially, uh, he instilled in me uh, a very strong kind of passion for taking care of people, you know, being a healer. Awesome. Um, now, the other interesting thing is that he was obviously very scientific to be the chairman of the neurosurgical training program back in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, but he was also um, religious. He, he had a very strong belief in a loving personal God, the power of prayer. I know that uh, he used that a lot in his own work with patients. Uh, and so for him, there was never a conflict between uh, religion uh, and his religious beliefs. Hmm. And I would say really spiritual because he was a deeply spiritual person, not just religious, um, but also the scientific side. And of course, growing up in the 60s and 70s, like so many of that generation, I always knew that science is the pathway to truth. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a scientist now than I've ever been. But I also came to realize that that materialist science, the conventional uh, kind of Newtonian determinism form of science is false. And uh, that especially when you're involved in neuroscience and consciousness, you need to be paying attention to 
uh, quantum physics and a lot of the other very deep and modern successes of science to make sense of it all. But they all inform us deeply about consciousness. And I just think in looking back on it, it's fascinating to me how my father uh, had such a harmonious kind of sense of uh, a loving personal God and all of his scientific knowledge. And it took me, you know, uh, the better part of half a century of life and then this profound near-death experience to begin to get to the place where he was, where it all made perfect sense and started to line up. Uh, but that really was a huge part of my formative yeah. uh, years was kind of having his uh, mentorship. Before we jump into your, your near-death experience, can you explain a little bit uh, to what like materialistic science is or kind of modern-day science and how that's false into how when you said, I'm more into science now than I've ever been. Can you just unpack that for us a little bit? Certainly. The, um, it turns out, and I would open that with a quote from uh, Werner Heisenberg, because I think this is very pertinent to what we're talking about. And Heisenberg won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1932 for his foundational work in quantum physics. And the, the quote is that the first sip from the, nat from the glass of natural sciences will lead you towards atheism but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. Mm. And that's because he, like so many other uh, quantum physicists, realized that there were some very deep lessons about the experimental results in quantum physics that implied that consciousness was not some epiphenomenon of the workings of chemical reactions, and electron fluxes in the brain, but something far more profound and fundamental in the universe. And that's exactly where all this is going. Now, uh, most people who today, uh, for example, uh, you can find uh, certain scientists who might say, oh, well, near-death experiences are nonsense because the brain creates consciousness. And uh, we know that you know, there's no such thing as consciousness beyond the brain. Well, that's not at all true when you study all the evidence. Um, you know, In fact, where quantum physics leads us is to a notion that there's a mental layer of the universe that's a, a, a kind of a layer of assimilation of, and integration of information that ends up determining in a top-down fashion the events of human lives. And uh, this is something that is really extraordinary and points to that primacy of consciousness. But that is something that is so, in, in many ways, kind of deeply mysterious and contrary to a lot of our assumptions that we make in this world, and those assumptions go back for centuries uh, and are kind of led by the scientific world. But the scientific world has, um, for a long time, and this was the science I was trained in, been uh, one of physicalism or materialism, which is only the physical world exists. And yet so many times when you study consciousness, you realize there's got to be much more to this world to explain all of conscious events. And that's really where the science of consciousness is going now. And it's a science that is wide open mm -hmm. to the realities of the afterlife, reincarnation, you know, is demonstrated through past life memories in children. Um, and so all of this represents a much bigger theater of operations for our understanding. And physicalism or Newtonian determinism, the, you know, the notion that, for example, ions and neurons would act like billiard balls, you know, yeah. that's not true. They're quantum of, you know, every at the very root of all of human perception and understanding the workings of the brain is this uh, kind of profound sense of a non-deterministic quantum world where free will and kind of the level of the mind can have tremendous influence. And that's where the revolution is really coming uh, 
to a head today. And I would say it's a revolution that's been brewing for more than 5,000 years, uh, but it really is about bringing all this together uh, and realizing that that quantum informed view of reality with the primacy of the mental layer of the universe yeah. is a very important thing to understand free will, placebo effect, all these other things that defy the materialist uh, predictions. Do you think the cause of um, suffering and the cause of us listening to that mind or the materialism is the direct reflection from the egoic or lower self? It's, Absolutely. It's, yeah. I mean, in fact, one of the biggest points I make to people getting started in all this in self-discovery and in meditation is you got to realize first and foremost that that little linguistic brain, that ego mind, yeah. that that running stream of thoughts that each and every one of us has is not our consciousness. It is not who we are. <clears throat> in fact, it's a little more than a parlor trick. And uh, that's why I think this uh, expanding into a much greater version of kind of seeing ourself and ourself as interconnected with others, uh, because uh, right at the heart of this revolution in the science of consciousness is an understanding that in many ways we're sharing one mind. And that one mind uh, is, for example, the infinitely loving God force that near-death experiencers have come in touch with in their journey. And that's why they come back to this world and realize there's nothing to fear about death. Uh, but that false sense of separation that comes from materialism, uh, physicalism, and from a, what I would say is a, a false interpretation of Darwinian evolution, focusing on competition uh, as opposed to collaboration and cooperation, which are much more active principles in the biological world. Uh, you know, collaboration, cooperation. So it's not all about this intense competition. And yet that Darwinian evolution and the way it was interpreted and then put to use in economic and in political and in uh, social systems uh, has been very damaging. That false sense of separation is very misleading and it runs contrary to one of the most the fundamental lessons offered in near-death experiences going back thousands of years. And that is of the life review. And in the life review, you actually experience events in your life, not from your perspective, but from the emotional perspective of those around you who are affected or impacted by your actions and even your thoughts. And so it's a whole different focus on the wholeness and the connectedness of all. And that's where I think um, this world can learn some very uh, dramatic and useful lessons in teaching us how to deal with ourselves and with each other. Uh, and what is really the, the value of, of near-death experiences is not what happens when we die, but how do we best live this life uh, so that it is rich and fulfilling, um, so that when we get to that life review, there's you know, no bad stuff and, and mainly just the good stuff to review about how we've helped others and contributed to the common good. Yeah, I always like to see consciousness as like a burner, like a like a burner flame. It's got, you know, one source of a flame, but it's got all these little holes where the individual flames come in there, but it's all part of the same source. Right. You know, if you think about our evolution in terms of, of us being addicted to our minds, as you know, the Buddha would say that's a cause of all suffering in itself. You know, we, we come into this world as a, you know, as a baby, as an infant, not really necessarily have any egoic self yet. Right. And then we seem to develop this. Is there, is there, in your opinion, do you think that we come in here and develop that sense of self that, and we start having this falseness that we believe of our mental images and concepts and experiences? 
in, in reason to do that is so that we can actually work through that without with without having the direct knowledge of what life is after this so that we can actually work through our karmic events? Well, I can tell you that in the decades since my coma, it, it became very clear to me, um, you know, that reincarnation was absolutely a fundamental part of the picture, that our souls don't just have one incarnation, birth to death and nothing more. And that's extremely important in this discussion because you're talking about what we come in here with and what are the kind of the stage settings. And, you know, conventional science taught me that we come in with our DNA that gives us kind of a a genetic a blueprint for the potentials. Yeah. And then all of that is shaped by nurture, by kind of our environment. And what that omits, though, is a very important facet. And, and the literature on um, past life memories in children is really quite strong. If you your listeners can go to uvadops.org, that's University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies.org, a scientific group that has studied uh, past life memories in children for more than six decades now, identified more than 2,500 cases where the best explanation is really of actual reincarnation. And the reason that's important is because we don't just come in here as an empty slate. And, and it's not just an empty slate that might be defined by our DNA and then by our kind of our environment and our nurturing, but there's more to the package and that more has to do with previous lives that we've lived, various kind of karmic setups, uh, things that were not resolved in prior life reviews will now be dealt as uh, new cards on the table for this lifetime to try and work into these issues and grow and transform through them. And so I think you really have to look at this bigger picture. And I'll give an example of why this kind of information is important. Uh, there was a recent paper out of University of Virginia, Jim Tucker, Okay. Uh, heads up the past life memory work now. And they looked at um, sexual identity in a previous lifetime. And what they found basically is somewhere over 80% of people in their database who uh, had a prior uh, lifetime experience as an opposite sex, 80, 80% plus of them manifested some uh uh, cross-sexual behavior in this life, hmm. as opposed to only 5% of those who had been same-sex in the previous life. And that's important because yeah. it tells us there's more going on in people that helps them to kind of live this life, find their own identity that can have to do with previous lifetimes. And there's a whole world of what's called transpersonal psychology, began with the work of, of Carl Jung and uh, uh, Charlie Tart, um, uh, Stan Groff, uh, Michael Newton, Brian Weiss, and others, uh, that really has brought to the fore the importance of realizing this bigger scheme of our lives and that we've all had lives here before. And, and I, I like to look at it because of this one mind focus of the modern kind of neuroscience. It's really, we're all sharing the dream of that one mind. And the analogy I use, it's often like uh, this gigantic diamond, that's the one mind, and there are facets all over that diamond. Each one of us is a facet, but we're not really separate from each other. And we're sharing in the learning and teaching opportunities that hardships in life can bring. And that's where I think all of this gets to be a lot more powerful in understanding the bigger picture of our lives. How did somebody, when they're starting off and working through this, when they're trying to separate themselves from being so addicted to their, to their mind, right, into their egoic self, one of the questions we get often is, how do I know if it's a thought from the ego or if it's one of nature's thought that's more in my dharma? 
what's the separation from there? And what would your advice to people be there? Well, I think kind of a general litmus test from my perspective is uh, how kind of self-serving the thought is, as opposed to higher good, uh, benefit of all involved, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, uh, certainly uh, one of the deepest and most profound lessons of my journey uh, was learning that those who before my coma I might have seen as my nemesis or my enemy, in many ways were near and dear soul mates. And it was only because we were trying to teach each other very tough lessons mm. that I saw them as kind of in my way. Uh, it gets back to Carl Jung's uh, kind of talk of the shadow side. Yes. And I love how Confucius said, you know, if you if you see something in another that bothers you, don't look inside of them, look inside of yourself. And I think that's an important thing is is all of us are really sharing this one mind with the universe. And so much of this is kind of discovering or rediscovering our identity with the universe and with that one mind. And that always involves the higher good and a sense of love and kindness and compassion and caring for others. And I think, um, you know, certainly when I was looking through your website, I was just fascinated with a lot of, of, of what you've done to unite spirituality and business. And I think this is a perfect example of how businesses can actually grow tremendously by uh, taking on this kind of higher soul of doing good for the world kind of vision for uh, making an impact on the world. And essentially, I would say that is kind of that litmus test of how advanced a soul is, is how much, uh, how altruistic and philanthropic and kind of other focused they are versus kind of me focused, you know, my own good and me versus other people. Uh, and that's a very kind of immature kind of early soul behavior. And yet a lot of that is what drives this dynamic. So all souls are playing a role, no matter what their level of engagement. Yeah, and I'm sure you've read the Gita before, but one of the, the some of the lines in there, they talk about in business particularly about how you can be laser focused on goals and results in the doing world if you are, but you let go of gaining anything personal from being focused on the result itself. And it's that fine line that people walk in business where it's like, being a business owner or, or interacting in life. I mean, life is not a, is a passive event, right? It's no longer we're sitting in Himalayas, you know, in caves. We are actually right. supposed to be involved in, in playing active roles here. And as a mentor and a friend of mine, Michael Singer, I know that you follow a lot of his stuff too as well, you know, always talks about if there's anything that's happening externally has nothing to do with you. It's the way of showing almost like your astro body, your body going, hey, it's time to get rid of this. And it's kind right. of sitting there with that acceptance. Um, so I kind of want to bring it to the to your actual near death experience and it may be starting off where in and i think in the beginning of your near-death experience you talk about this kind of transition if you will from not really you know knowing dr eben alexander for who you are then this kind of awareness that you've kind of lost that kind of description of yourself if you use that context and you became much more aware um and a much more subtle level of everything um as you started to experience the nde Yes, it was. Uh, I think one thing that's important to point out is one of the atypical features of my ND. In fact, it's probably about the only feature that really makes my uh, 
uh, kind of different from others or did not allow me to get a perfect 32 score on Ruth Grayson's scale is the fact that I was amnesic. Mm -hmm. I had no memory of Eben Alexander's life, no words, no language, no knowledge of Earth or this universe. It really was an empty slate. And that is unusual for an NDE. But in looking back on it uh, over months and years, it became clear to me that that had to happen for some of the deepest lessons of my journey to unfold. And if it had followed a more traditional path, for example, my father had passed over four years before my coma. If he had actually been engaged with me actively uh, in that NDE, it would have been very different. And in fact, I would have been much more likely to dismiss it, you know, as, you know, it's who you want to see on the way out and your psyche kind of puts it there. And, and that's the end of the story. And that's why for me and those who've read Proof of Heaven will appreciate this. It had to be somebody else. There was a guardian angel there who was very important in my journey. Um, uh, you know, she was apparent to me, uh, uh, it had all started in that earthworm eye view, and then I ascended through this music, musical portal up into this rich, ultra-real gateway valley. And that's where I encountered that guardian angel. Uh, she accompanied me on, on this butterfly wing among millions of other butterflies. And uh, she, of course, was crucial to my understanding of it because I didn't know who she was, even though her thoughts came into me as this telepathic, emotional kind of power. And uh, uh, really, my first uh, true mentorship in that realm of not having any memories of this world, uh, her message to me was, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are cared for. Uh, and that message was affirmed over and over again every time I passed through that realm. Uh, but that, and that was, of course, just a stepping stone on my way to the deepest levels, the core realm, as I explained in Proof of Heaven, um, where the entire higher dimensional multiverse was there as this teaching tool throughout all of eternity. It was extraordinary. You cannot put these things into words and have them make much sense. And yet, uh, the commonality in these journeys, when you uh, talk to hundreds and thousands of people who have been there, uh, it all starts to line up to show us this is really a very active realm, and in some ways, a more important realm to our existence as beings than this material realm. Yeah. But this is where we learn. This is where we uh, learn and teach and grow. Yeah. So when you when you think about awareness and we think about words as in terms of more pointers it's kind of like their their description on a menu if you're trying to order a meal but you can't mistake the menu for the meal itself right in in the difference between people who are listening and trying to understand with their mind versus knowing. And you know you can speak with such clarity and confidence that I just know but you can't really describe somebody what what an orange tastes like until somebody actually tastes an orange so how do you um how do you describe the knowing that you obtained through the awareness of going through your nde well it's really more of a kind of sharing the story and sharing the general ideas so people can participate in that but inviting them to go within okay because words and language will never fully convey uh, so much of the lessons and the ambience and the kind of power of that immersive reality when we traverse the veil and kind of reconnect with our higher soul, just as we as happens in an NDE or in a death experience. But we can do that in meditation. And so, uh, and you might be aware, I do a lot of work with my partner, life partner in, uh, and co-author of my third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, Karen Newell. And she's the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. Mm -hmm. 
people can learn a lot more at sacredacoustics.com. But basically, it's a form of binaural uh, beat brainwave entrainment that means the sounds are primarily being processed at a circuit in lower brainstem. And that's why I think uh, these are so powerful at helping to separate conscious awareness from the here and now and the sense of self of the physical body. And so it's really by inviting others along on that journey. And we've had uh, many successes in our workshops. And I know among her uh, participants in sacred acoustics that communicate with her from around the world, um, a lot of people having great success at kind of connecting with their higher soul and traversing that veil and leaving that little uh, ego mind, you know, behind in time out where it belongs, because there is much greater wisdom that we can glean from the universe by going within our own consciousness. And as you start to realize uh, that the concrete nature of this model of the one mind and the mental nature of the universe and the kind of top-down causal principles that completely invigorate our notions of human free will. Uh, that's where I think you start to realize the value of this entire revolution in human thinking. But it's uh, to get to your question, it's really by inviting people to explore their own consciousness through meditation and centering prayer to discover many of these things for themselves. When you came back from your NDE, was it, um, and I believe in, your, in, in proof of heaven, you talk about how in the first couple of weeks or even months, you didn't really fully grasp what you went through. How did that start to unfold for you when you came back into this world? Well, important to remember, I spent seven days in coma. At the beginning of that coma, my doctors estimated a 10% chance of survival. By the end of that week in coma, they estimated a 2% chance of survival, no chance of recovery. That's why they were recommending stopping the antibiotics and just letting me go. Uh, and when I did come back to this world, hours later, my brain was absolutely savaged. Mm -hmm. I did not recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons at the bedside. I had no idea who they were. So anyone who is, is uh, researching my story needs to understand the full power yeah. of that destruction of the meningitis. And that's what makes the miracle of my recovery over the next two months of a full recovery with even more complete memories after that recovery than they had been before coma. That is a real shocker and demands explanation. Now, also know that when I woke up in that ICU bed, all I knew was where I'd just been, this extraordinary journey, the spiritual journey of my NDE. And then over the next few months, I had this kind of slow return of knowledge, so beginning with words and language and knowledge of my personal relationships and those family members, but then expanding to my semantic knowledge, my religious beliefs, all those things kind of came back over time. And in that, you know, initially, when I told my doctors about my NDE, they would just pat me on the back and say, well, your brain was soaking in pus. We have no idea how you're even coming back to us. But you can forget about it because the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. So I listened to my doctors. I thought it had to be a vast hallucination. As I told my son, who was majoring in neuroscience at the time in college, I told him it was way too real to be real. Hmm. So in fact, I really started as my own worst skeptic. But remember that as all that knowledge in neuroscience is coming back to me, I'm going into the hospital, talking with my doctors, going through my medical records, looking at all the neurologic exams, looking through the scans, CT, MRI, trying to make sense of it. And it didn't line up. In fact, there's a case report on my medical records for anyone who wants to share that surprise at the whole case. Uh, that came out in uh, uh, September of 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases by Dr. Serbi Khanna. 
uh, and Bruce Grayson uh, and uh, one other author. And um, that case report makes it very clear that I was deathly ill and uh, should have had no experience at all, given the decimation of my neocortex and how well documented it was. That kind of brain could not give you a dream or hallucination. And, and yet I had the most extraordinary, ultra-real, memorable, detailed, uh, meaningful experience of my entire life when my brain was documented to be uh, so damaged and the neocortex so damaged that there was no way it was participating in providing any of that. So all of that you know, was a tremendous uh, kind of mystery to me uh, that unfolded in the months after my coma. And of course, as I tell it in Proof of Heaven, four months after my coma, when I saw a picture involving my adoption history, and that picture identified that beautiful uh, guardian angel on the butterfly wing for the first time, all of a sudden, everything started to click and make sense. And I realized it was, it seemed way too real to be real because it really occurred. And, um, that really opened me to a tremendous amount of investigation. That's why I've spent the last 12 years working with scientists around the world uh, and working with thousands of other experiencers to try and make better sense of all this. And the scientific community is uh, definitely making big progress uh, in, in understanding this. And it will involve a much richer kind of interpretation of quantum physics and our understanding of the nature of reality. You talk about memories um, in, in a couple of different of your books and, and on podcasts um, and the, how they're not really stored in the brain like we are led to believe. Um, so you can fact check that if you think I'm wrong there. But So where are memories and how do you access them and, and where do they go? And I think you actually bring up a great um, example in, is in Alzheimer's care as patients, right, in terms of they having like this, this sense of terminal lucidity towards the right. end. So I'd love for you to jump in on that. Well, that's a, a beautiful question. And, um, you know, it's something that I did discuss in Proof of Heaven. Um, well, we talked about memory a little bit in there, but it's especially covered in our third book, In Living in a Mindful Universe, that I co-wrote with Karen book, Duell. And, uh, and that book goes into a lot more detail about memory. Now, uh, I'll point out that from a neurosurgical perspective, we've we've kind of thought memories don't seem to be stored in the brain at all for a long time because, you know, over the last century, more than, you know, a million craniotomies were resection of certain parts of the brain. There's never been an example where a resection of part of the brain led to some definable loss of uh, long-term memories. It doesn't happen. Now, it is true, as was discovered in the early 1950s, uh, if you damage the medial temporal lobe, the hippocampus, that kind of thing, especially bilaterally, you run a risk of uh, creating a patient who has great difficulty converting short-term to long-term memory. But that doesn't mean you've found long-term memories. In fact, Wilder Penfield, a renowned Canadian neurosurgeon, we discuss a lot of his work in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, um, uh, he spent his whole career, you know, kind of researching memory and electrical stimulation of the brain uh, to kind of associate phenomenal experience with certain regions of the brain. I did a lot of those cases myself, awake craniotomies in patients where we use, we would map out the brain uh, with an awake patient. And um, so I know a lot about those techniques and all, but I deferred to Penfield because of his reputation as an impeccable scientist, and he spent his whole career really looking at that. And he came away from it realizing memories are not stored anywhere in the neocortex. Now, he wrote a book in 1975 called The Mystery of the Mind, where he said maybe memories are stored in the brainstem. That would be a default 
position because where else are you going to put them in the brain? The reality is we're coming to realize, and especially when you study the reincarnation literature, you realize, of course, memories are not stored in the brain. How do those memories survive uh, in cases of reincarnation where there's no genetic link in most of those cases? Um, and there's no uh, other kind of physical mechanism for storage. Now, you're asking, where are they stored? Well, that is a much bigger, deeper, more profound question, which gets at the whole nature of reality and gets at the whole uh, business of we look around at this physical world and we think it exists out there independently of our observing mind. One of the deepest and most profound lessons of quantum physics that's made it a tough pill to swallow for materialist scientists is that the deepest findings of those experiments uh, scream at us that there is no objective physical world independent of the observing mind of the observer. And this is the part where we focus then on that mental top-down layer of the universe. And it's something that humans have access to. And a big mistake in the 20th century was people thought human consciousness had to evolve. And so they would short circuit all these discussions about the primacy of mind and say, but wait a minute, uh, where did it come from? It wasn't here before. Well, the fact is it was here before. I mean, it pre-exists the big bang, that mental layer of the universe. Um, and that is really where I think uh, the modern scientific community is headed on understanding all of this. But the important thing is it awakens for all the rest of us the absolute reality of free will, because free will is absolutely on the chopping block with conventional neuroscience that pretends that it's all just chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain giving you an illusion of consciousness. Uh, and that's where they're wrong, uh, because there they think that if it's, uh, if it's just those... Uh, 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 electrons and protons and quarks, atoms and molecules following the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, giving us an illusion of consciousness. Obviously, there's no place to insert any kind of free will. It's all just natural laws. But that's where uh, this kind of idea of the mental universe and top-down causality is so important. And we do have, uh, you know, as mental beings, uh, uh, we, we do have access to that mental layer, but uh, more essentially, I would say we're spiritual beings. And Karen and I often talk about the spiritual, mental, and physical planes of existence. But of course, those are just linguistic terms that kind of confuse the oneness of it all. And we are truly kind of united in the spiritual sense and have access to the top-down causality of the universe. That's the mental layer. And uh, this, this all opens a door to a much richer understanding of our existence and of our capacity to uh, basically bring the world of our dreams into reality. Do you think language, I mean, language is a beautiful, allows us to have this conversation, allows us to communicate, but has a shadow side to it. Do you think language is what cuts us off from being able to access that one universe? I mean, I, I almost think about it, as you mentioned Carl Jung a couple of times, one of my favorite quotes from him is, you know, real, the problem with religion is that it create it actually prevents you from having a religious experience. And it's right. almost like there is a framework of thinking that people get trapped into that actually prevents them from opening themselves up. And do we do this on a linear basis within our individual selves of us getting attached to our own left brain, if you will, I believe that's where most of the language comes from and get, gets attracted to the book because that voice inside our head, right? The annoying neighbor, the annoying friend, whatever that is, is in right. there. Annoying roommate. Annoying roommate. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and how, uh, and how that voice, I mean, it speaks the same language you do. It communicates and it knows exactly how to Velcro you, if you will, to itself so it can survive. And I, and, uh, you know, and in fact, that will actually even sabotage the host in order to keep you 
to keep you Velcro to it because that's how it actually lives itself. So when you do transcend to the one universe, you actually are transcending this personal self, this, this your Velcro state of to this level of egoic consciousness. So is language the kind of precursor? Because in, if you study Helen Keller and she actually didn't really develop a sense of ego until she started using language. Right. right. And so do, is language that kind of, um, it's such a powerful force, but at the same time, is it cutting us off from the universe itself? Beautiful question. I would say language, you know, it's obviously essential for how we interact as human beings to convey ideas, concepts, try and help each other to share in our personal experience and that kind of thing. So language is critical, but you hit the nail on the head. Uh, because language shapes so much of our kind of view of the world. In many ways, it prevents us from seeing the oneness uh, of all that exists with you know, who we are. That, that there's this huge overlap of our mind with the mind of the entire universe. Um, and I think we miss that. Language uh, can be very misleading. I think a beautiful example of how much language kind of dominates the picture we build of the world and that kind of egoic model uh, you know, of self versus non-self, et cetera, is Jill Bolte Taylor's book, yeah. My Stroke of Insight. And of course, people can watch her TED Talk. It's one of the, the most watched TED Talks. But I read that book a few months after my coma. And it was very instructive to me because she basically described a vascular malformation, it was right there in Wernicke's area and right in the middle of receptive speech. That's where we put together kind of language, our ideas of causality, of separate objects, how they interact, all of those kind of assumptions and, and uh, preconceptions about things are built out of language. And so as her linguistic center was wrecked by this hemorrhage, the boundaries of self expanded outward from her skin and her body she became one with the desk and the rug and the trees outside the window, the clouds in the sky. And that sense of oneness, of identification with all of it, also involved this incredible sense of loving oneness, binding force of love. In many ways, uh, very powerful features common to near-death experiences of that oneness uh, and shared uh, sense of purpose with the universe. And that was all by getting rid of her linguistic brain that she had this profound sense of kind of oneness with all that is and a sense of love. And I think that is a very important uh, aspect of this. And it's why we encourage people, you know, we can talk about these, these concepts uh, and that's all great, you know, sharing these ideas. But at the end of the day, uh, no soul is going to come into this knowing without going within, exploring, you know, within mind. And especially as you come to realize that the mind is not something that lives parked, you know, in this three and a half pound gelatinous <laughs> mass uh, floating in a warm, dark bath between my ears, but that mind, uh, kind of, you know, encompasses the entire universe and all of eternity. Mind has tremendous power to kind of expand and, and consolidate and all of that. And that's what we have the power to do by going within. That's why centering prayer and meditation and especially powerful tools for deep meditation like sacred acoustics can be so valuable in all of this. But you're exactly right. It's, uh, you know, the first step I do in meditation is to put that little linguistic voice in my head, uh, let it make a request, state an intention. Uh, you know, I give it a little gratitude, but then it goes into timeout. Uh, and I ride the tones because there is far greater wisdom the universe can offer, uh, you know, when we open our minds like that.
Yeah, I mean, well, thoughts in themselves, right, are just, there's no thought that's more real than any other thought, right? But yeah, some thoughts we seem to electrify, right? We have, you know, and it's not like, I think one of the mistakes people make, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is where people, when they start getting into their conscious or going inward, orienting their lives to something that's no longer external, right? And they start, in, you know, orienting internally, they start to try to fight their mind. It's like they're right. trying, like, it's like trying to save a, a drowning victim, right? They're fighting almost with the mind instead of surrendering to you and just letting the mind do its thing. And I think York Sharir said, an ignored guest quickly leaves. And that kind of that same reference where if, Nobody's going to stop the mind from doing what it is. That's just it just creates thoughts. It's like a thought bubbling machine, right? They're right. just if you see them as translucent, meaning they don't really grab you. It's kind of like a cloud floating through the sky. It doesn't grab the sky, and you don't electrify it. Then you don't become it, right? And so, how do um, how does meditation help? You know, and I know that you use linguistic meditation. How does that help for people to kind of separate themselves to start? peeling back the layers so they can see the fact that, hey, you know what, maybe I'm actually not this roommate. Maybe I don't actually have to believe it because it's like, it's right. almost like that annoying roommate has its, you know, its arm around your neck going, hey, you know what, I'm squeezing you. And it's like, you want to see how good of a friend I am? Like, I'm going to let go for a second. And you're like, wow, thank you so much for letting go. And, and all along, it's been the one causing all of the suffering to begin with. So how does right. meditation really um, help people? And, and where, where would people get more information about linguistic meditation? Um, yeah, it's Sacred Acoustic Meditation. You can learn more at sacredacoustics.com. And uh, she has a lot of uh, free training videos and other things on there. Very informative, telling you how to make good use of it. There's a very handy app that runs on the iPhone that she just up upgraded tremendously. Uh, so all the resources are there at Sacred Acoustics. And I think the key is, is learning, uh, you know, kind of taking these lessons to heart about the kind of universal uh, uh, mind, this uh, kind of overlap of our mind with that of the universe and sense of purpose. Um, and that it's not about that ego and it's not about, uh, you know, the self versus the world, but you re we really live in a world of abundance yes. uh, where there's plenty to go around, plenty to share, and, and that we gain our, our greatest benefits from contributing to the higher good. Uh, and I think that's where meditation can be especially important. Centering prayer for me is the same thing. Centering prayer is just a form of prayer that's not really supplicative and asking for certain things as much as a, a kind of a silent prayer of communion with an infinitely loving force that uh, where we trust that uh, that force will give us you know, the things that make our life better. And I think that's an important thing. It's about turning over and not trying to control everything. Just as you find, say, in addiction medicine, yeah. addiction and alcoholism, uh, you know, this, this uh, notion of 12-step programs and a higher power and turning it over. So you're not having to drive the bus, but you can actually just ride around and look out the window and you don't have to feel responsible with everything your ego charges you to be responsible for. Um, and that's where I think we can really... Uh, for me, that gaining trust in the universe came from my NDE, trust that there is an infinitely loving force. And to me, especially as I've worked with thousands of other near-death experiencers over the last uh, 12 years plus, I've come to realize how uh, that trust is something that is so uh, readily available to those who have been on a deep dive. Uh, and, and I think that's an important lesson because no matter what the circumstances of life, and as an example, I would say that um, 
uh, in reading accounts, say, of, of uh, hospice workers in prisons and maximum security prisons, uh, where you had a bunch of murders and rapists, and you read accounts of uh, other prisoners helping these prisoners in their dying process, the kind of things that they witness and and that they the kind of healing that they came to, even after living such uh, difficult lives where they'd handed out so much pain and suffering to others, is very revealing of the power of connecting with this loving force of this one mind of this infinitely loving God. Uh, and that means really just living our lives from a position of kindness and compassion and loving others. Uh, that's really the solution that comes out of uh, investigation of near-death experiences and the lessons they might harbor. But these are really lessons for all of us about how to live these lives and make all the choices in our lives, uh, as opposed to being a victim of that ego mind. And I think that's where it really uh, where meditation and centering prayer and knowledge and reading about NDEs and understanding the bigger concepts of consciousness can really help us grow into this with a higher sense of purpose and contribution to that higher good. I love that. I love how actually how you said, uh, you know, 15 minutes or so ago about how sometimes your your enemies that are closest to you are actually your closest soulmates uh, outside of this world. I thought that was really, really powerful as well, too, and a great way to kind of see challenges and, and how they're not really problems. They're just challenges to help you kind of work through whatever karmic activity that's there. And I think that's one of the things with past life regression is, at least for me, I, I know it when I when I first started my past life regression for the first time, the first 15, 20 minutes, I was kind of like, well, I'm not really going anywhere. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you've done one or not, but it was just boom, I was there. And it brought wow. me back to one of the, it was just instantaneous. And I try to explain to people, it's like, you can't use words, words will never be able to describe it, what an right. actual experience is. But I was just there, I could see everything I was wearing. I could, it was almost like I was actually reliving, it's almost like re rewinding like a DVD player back to a different you know time of the, of the movie and actually rewatching it from a different perspective. And it's almost like you could continue the flow of how fast you wanted to go through there and then um and in that sense it kind of allowed me to work work through a very traumatic karmic event it actually happened to be when i died and i think a lot of people that do past life regression it brings it back to a very traumatic event that you weren't able to actually work through has that been right. your experience with with past life regression Absolutely, and I, I, I've, I've been through uh, two, two of the actual regressions with uh, trained therapists that were very informative in many ways, but I've also taken much of that into my meditative experience, yeah. and I often will go uh, very deep with an intention of uh, just uh, show me some of those uh, scenes and uh, occurrences from uh, past lives. And uh, it's amazing the kind of things that come up. And of course, your first question is, really, did I live this life? Do I re remember that as a personal memory? Uh, the best thing is just go with the flow. Mm -hmm. As you say, uh, it can be a very real, uh, powerful and convincing presentation of information. And from my point of view, that kind of thing is never random, chaotic information, but it's always being offered up by the universe to all, to serve as kind of a stepping stone to help us in the journey. Uh, and especially when you study near-death experiences, study life reviews, which have been described in more than 50% of near-death experiences going back thousands of years, the life review can be very, very detailed. Mm -hmm. And it's because you're not referring to some vague sepia-tinted memory yes. that you might try and recall you know, in a, a normal day-to-day -day fashion, but the universe is demonstrating to you that all these events in many ways are malleable and still happening yeah, in this yeah. kind of eternal now. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where it becomes so interesting to investigate into those past life 
uh, kind of issues. And I would say that kind of practice also opens the door widely to forms of creativity, just as Einstein and Edison Robert Louis Stevenson and others had a means of getting into a hypnagogic state, kind of that between awake and sleep state. And that's where they would seek their creative juices. That's where a lot of their best ideas came from. They weren't following the breadcrumbs of their linguistic brain to get to the answer. They were opening their minds to the universe and allowing the creative uh, power of the universe to impinge on their awareness and to offer them guidance to help them in growing and learning uh, and basically transforming a soul. So that's why this kind of, uh, uh, you know, non-linguistic, non-rational, logical follow the breadcrumbs style of going within and inviting the universe to uh, give us this kind of knowledge and give us these experiences that help us grow can be so powerful. When you, um, your state now, obviously you've, you've gone through this and you're also, you're bringing a lot of being or consciousness into your activity now. Do you still get irritated, angry? Do you see those emotions? Did those things still show up in your life today? They do. Uh, you know, I meditate an hour to a day. I promise you that that, that kind of meditation has uh, kind of helped me over time uh, in terms of balancing and becoming more harmonious with the universe. Uh, and yet still, I would say there are um, times when I, I find myself kind of reacting, yeah. uh, and I always go right within and I kind of immediately take that helicopter view of seeing how, uh, I'm being triggered basically. Yeah. And, and I know it's, it's shadow issues. I know it's things about me, mm. uh, that I might be seeing in other people. Uh, but what have you, it's, um, uh, always, you know, a question of, of learning what these hardships and difficulties and challenges uh, can offer up in terms of growth, yeah. uh, because that's really what it's all about is growing in this world. This is the world where we get that growth done with spirits don't have much growth in that between lives world other than the processing of life reviews and planning of next incarnations. Uh, but really this uh, openness of uh, to kind of higher soul and the lessons the universe can offer us is a tremendous gift, but it always involves that sense of trust, gratitude, kindness, compassion, uh, love for all involved. Uh, I mean, every bit of that is important in this discussion. I love that. You know, clearly when you came back from your near-death experience, you started, you know, dedicating your, your life to, you know, even more science now, as you talked about earlier in this podcast, you didn't go like hide in a cave or go meditate for hours. You actually got very active in life. And in fact, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but even more active in this journey of kind of spreading this message, writing your three books, which will all be um, linked in the show notes and a couple other interviews you've done as well too. What, what sparked you to want to, you know, come out here and share this knowledge and, and give it? It, was it? it wasn't necessarily coming from the egoic side. Like, where, where did that originate from? Was it just something that, you know, I think the, the, the almost kind of the left side of the brain mind I always kind of think about is when the egoic, egoic side is kind of talking to you, it's almost in the left side front part of the brain, whereas you have more of those aha visceral moments, that conscious contact with things seems to come from behind and deeper and just more, it's more visceral like the whole body moves with it versus just a, a, you know, a single indexed thought that shows up there. So what, what sparked for you that kind of was that enthusiasm to go out and create and to write and to share, I mean, 400 interviews taking the time to do this today. Well, it really, um, it has to do with what I realized in those months after my coma. As I said, early on, I was my own worst skeptic. My doctors had told me the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. 
I didn't yet know just how ill I was. I didn't yet know the medical details of my case. Um, and just like those doctors who wrote up the case report on my medical records, when they presented it to the peer reviewers at the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, the peer reviewers said, this case is absurd. It doesn't line up. This kind of patient does not have a full recovery. How do you explain it? And they explained it by saying it was the fact that I had a near-death experience that allowed me to have such profound healing. And it's because they knew of other cases, like Anita Morjani, who wrote the book, Dying to Be Me. It had an yeah. advanced stage four lymphoma, was deep in coma, down to 85 pounds within hours of death, uh, way back in the early 2000s when she went into a, a emergency room in Hong Kong. But she had a powerful near-death experience a very spiritual journey of connecting with the soul of her departed father, seeing her brother who was flying from India to be with her. He, um, you know, she could see him on the plane coming to visit her and get even sense his thoughts, things like that. Mary C. Neal, the orthopedic surgeon who had an over 30 minute warm water drowning in, in Southern Chile in the late 1990s, um, in a kayaking accident. And, uh, you know, any doctor who hears those stories, they say, those people are dead. They're gone. That's what, when I read my medical records, I said, this doesn't line up. The same problem with those peer reviewers in the case report. And what this is telling us is these are extraordinary examples of kind of spiritual healing. Uh, if we just awaken to who we are as spiritual beings and start to kind of hear these stories and see them as um, kind of guideposts for what is possible for all of us. That's where I think people can really start uh, gleaning uh, uh, benefit from all of this. You know, modern medicine has acknowledged the power of mind over matter for more than six decades by using placebo effect as the gold standard for assessing any new medical modality, uh, the placebo-controlled double-blinded uh, trial, that kind of thing. And that's because physicians realized many decades ago, that a patient's beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes play a tremendous role in their potential to heal. Uh, and in fact, it goes much more than just placebo. It's not just a sugar pill uh, fixing a headache. If you go to noetic.org, the Institute of Noetic Sciences website, put in the search term spontaneous remission, you'll uncover a book they wrote in the mid-1990s. You can download the entire book for free and legally from their site. It's out of print now. But they're also updating that database, 25 more years of data. Wow. That data from 1995 was of 3,500 cases of people with advanced cancer, advanced infections, many other maladies that went far beyond uh, the medical interventions in terms of their healing. Uh, and that's why that database is so important. It really shows us the power of belief, the power of healing, going far beyond what most of us assume is a placebo effect to really you'll start questioning uh, the healing modalities broadly because most of it seems to be endogenous from the beliefs of a person that they can get better. And that is where mind over matter in medicine has been honored by medical science. And yet it's not officially taught. Uh, you know, the materialist uh, model is still what is taught in medical schools. Uh, but I think that is shifting How over you... time. I think 
Uh, there are more and more courses uh, showing the power of spirituality, uh, power of prayer, things like that, that are being offered in medical and nursing schools. Uh, the value of meditation, of going within, all of these things are, are making significant inroads into medical education today that I think in many ways is going to revolutionize our notions of healing over the next decade or two. Yeah, I'm a, I've been practicing transcendental meditation for almost 15 years now, and I think that's a very powerful form of, of meditation in itself. And I know the I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty in tune to what that whole community is doing right now and the research that's coming out of transcendental meditation. What would you say, um, you know, for people that are in business, that are leaders, that are there, you know, they have these goals for their organizations. One of the common, even my own kind of, I get this question my, my for myself sometimes, where it's like, you have to, you have 700 people in your organization, right? You have, you have to make thousands of decisions a day. Some are delivering news that's not great. Some are delivering wonderful news and there's just, and there's challenges all over the place, right? How do people stay centered in bringing that level of consciousness while interacting in the world um, as a leader, right? We're all leaders in some division, right? We're leading people holding the door. We're leading people in business. We're leading our families. How do people bring this into their daily actions? Well, I think it's really, I think it's important to have a daily practice of meditation or centering prayer of going within. Uh, I like to do it an hour or two a day. I think, you know, five, 10, 20 minutes is fine if that's what you can muster. Yeah. Uh, but but have that be a, a kind of a an adventure of opening up to the higher good, to the commonality of, of mind and kind of shared sense of purpose. And um, always uh, keeping the focus. Um, and I would say here is where a study of near-death experiences and of life reviews uh, can be very informative. But to really keep, keep the focus, just as we find at the end of, of life, uh, the universe kind of tends to make us focus uh, on those events, uh, interpersonal relationships, and how we treated others and how we even treated ourselves. Um, and that kind of focus and always remembering that from the point of view of the near-death experiencer uh, and death experiencers, I would say, um, it is uh, very clear that it's really that higher good and the relationships and the power of love and kindness, compassion, and never forgetting gratitude when necessary, forgiveness, but these general kind of fundamental principles that are so prominent in near-death experience stories and in the kind of positive changes that NDEers have from their journey is something all of us can learn from. I know Ken Ring wrote years ago about how near-death experiences benefit not only the experiencer, but just knowledge of them and learning about them can have tremendous positive effects for other people who have not had such experiences. Yeah. And I think um, it's this kind of awareness uh, and then spending some time every day to kind of go within and let the universe share with us that kind of commonality of purpose, that oneness, that power of love. Um, we end up becoming much more focused on the higher good. And that's where I think uh, all of this starts to actually play a practical role is when we bring it into our lives on a daily basis with the choices we make. But it's, uh, from my point of view, important to have that kind of daily touching of base with uh, uh, that one mind, that kind of power of love and connection within us all uh, to help us then in living that uh, as we go through our daily lives through all your experiences through, you know, your career in the, in the past 12 years, do you feel that 
you know, there's help from the other side, consciousness, kind of this other world. I always think of this as like, it, I explained it like, it'd be like you jumping down to Florida for a vacation. Like you go down to Florida and it's like, you see your buddies like, Hey, I'll see you after death. Right. You kind of jump down here, we'll do some work and come back to where it is. Um, it, it's kind of my mind. I kind of see it that way. So when you do it, do you, do you feel that when you've kind of made strides to get past, um, the lower of being addicted to the lower self, that there is this, that liberation actually happens to you and not by you. And do you believe that that's, that is what's happening is that you're here, like there's all these souls that are journeys with you that are actually liberating you through the challenges of life instead of you actually physically doing something to liberate yourself? Well, I think it's more of the awareness of the bigger journey that is allowing for the liberation. You know, whenever we're kind of stuck in our own little ego mind and we think it's all about us versus the world, uh, we're very limited in our kind of responses and understanding. Uh, And so I think this kind of bigger view that uh, opens us up to really um, serving the higher good and uh, trying to make the world a better place, trying to help the least, the last and the lost, um, you know, refugees and uh, people who are uh, not advantaged by our economic successes in in broader society. Uh, This is really where we start to gain significant traction in our own soul growth is when we can bring benefit down to those lower levels uh, and try and help the less fortunate, try and help others as much as we can. But uh, I think it's a shared journey. And, uh, you know, some of the greatest kind of wisdom and liberation in, in kind of the sense of this journey comes from realizing that kind of shared nature and that it all has to do with that binding force of love. Um, yeah, I love that. And, and this lesson is one that I think, especially in these kind of challenging and polarized, contentious times in our society, uh, will be especially uh, useful. And in fact, I would say I'm very optimistic about where I believe the world is headed. Uh, I think the COVID pandemic and the economic challenges in many ways offer a collective gift of desperation. Just like in the alcoholism and addiction world, uh, we learn that we can uh, grow uh, tremendously by uh, kind of trusting in the universe and just allowing uh, with gratitude and with uh, forgiveness when necessary for that world to unfold. Uh, I think this is where, um, you know, the world can become much better through this kind of awakening uh, of understanding. Yeah. Two more questions for you. The first one, what does money mean to you? I look at money as green energy, and it is there uh, to help us serve this this purpose that we can identify of working for the higher good, showing love, compassion, kindness to all fellow beings. Well, if we have more financial resources, that gives us opportunities to share more of that wealth, to help bring the whole world up. And um, I think capitalism can be a fantastic model as long as it's not a greedy capitalism that's based in kind of a Darwinian notion of a zero-sum game where there's not an abundance of, of all the necessary ingredients to go around to this world. Uh, so in many ways, I think um, uh, this, this kind of opening to uh, kind of the broader sense of purpose uh, can be very sharing um, and... Uh, the world can become a far better place, but we really, it's, we've got to get beyond this notion of thinking that uh, it, it's limited, that, uh, you know, you, you have to be a winner because everybody else is a loser. Uh, but no, you contribute to the winningness of the world uh, through your best efforts. And that's what will really enhance your soul's journey uh, the greatest. And you'll, you'll find that out when you get to that life review. But best not to save up a lot of bad baggage for the life review, but go on and take these lessons to heart now 
start giving, sharing, helping others. Uh, I mean, the rewards far outweigh uh, any kind of price we pay for that kind of behavior. Yeah, I love that. I lied. I have two questions. <laughs> so my my two, actually I have three. So two more. Um, my second one is what um, what does spirituality mean to you? Well, for me, spirituality, um, I, I think it has two main ingredients. One ingredient is uh, a kind of a realization and a kind of a concrete living of this idea that we're all together. Uh, just as it's demonstrated very broadly in the life reviews and near-death experiences, we are all just facets on the diamond of the one mind, sharing the dream of the one mind. And that's all bound together through forces of love, kindness, and compassion. And the more... Uh, we can come to realize that the more I think we can come into our true uh, purpose in this life. Yeah, I love that. What is the purpose of relationships? I think like close, intimate relationship, life partners with us. And are, well, they, are they close soulmates to us that have been here to help guide us along? I'll put it this way. You can never talk about a, a, an individual soul growth because there is no such thing. It's always about relationships. It's always about a kind of a shared kind of dreaming of that dream of the one mind uh, and a shared sense of learning and teaching each other uh, through these life experiences. And again, that focus on the hardships and difficulties and the, and the other people in the world that we find challenging, because that's where we're often identifying the most fertile areas where we can grow as individual souls. Uh, so all of this is a gift when we come to realize that those hardships and challenges in many ways are stepping stones that mark the way forward and allow for tremendous personal growth and transformation. And, and really, I would say all of this is about the evolution of consciousness. As Pierre Teilhard de Chardin wrote in his book, The Phenomenon of Man in the mid-20th century, he saw beyond just the simplistic Darwinian evolution of the day and realize that in fact the universe is evolving, but it's all of sentience and consciousness that is evolving. And I would say, just like that old saying, all po politics is local, I would say the purpose of the universe is for evolution of consciousness itself. And that is nothing more than the individual journeys of sentient beings coming into the self-discovery and coming much more in alignment with their own notion of uh, their role in the universe. So that sense of oneness and then spirituality also uh, has a part of it that I would say is a shared sense of purpose and, and uh, meaning and kind of destination, destiny. Uh, so it's really those two things, the purpose and uh, shared purpose and meaning, and also the sharedness, shared kind of consciousness, emotions world. We like to think of our minds as our own little mental experience, and yet so much in modern science reveals the reality of things like telepathy, intuitions, you know, shared death experiences where someone might be a thousand miles away from a loved one who's passing, but the soul comes through them, even ushering them through a full life review of the departing soul before that bystander soul comes back to this world. So these are all examples of kind of the bigger aspects of our spirituality uh, as they manifest in human experience. That's wonderful. Do you think we have problems in life or are they challenges? I would say we have challenges yeah. and that I, I like to look at them as gifts, uh, you know, and I've had challenges in my life that at the time seemed like, why did this happen to me? Yeah. Um, you know, for example, I talk in book Proof of Heaven, yeah. how I stopped drinking alcohol back in early 1991. I never had any trouble at work with that, but I knew at home on my nights off, 
uh, I was too dependent on it. And so I had to let that go. And I look back on that now as a beautiful gift. Not that I let it go, but that I had that affliction in the first place because that hardship allowed me for a tremendous amount of growth. Likewise, my meningitis. I mean, most people would look at that as an incredible curse. Why would anybody have that? Well, uh, I can tell you that... Um, Looking back on it, it was a tremendous gift. And I also know from the lessons I learned that it would have been a gift even without my surviving it all. Although obviously my surviving it and coming back and, and sharing this story, um, you know, has been an important part of my life and unfolding. And what I consider to be my gift to the world is that sharing of it. You had asked me earlier about what that was like to kind of come up with that brutal honesty of having to go public with the story, where once I realized what had happened, um, and how important it was, you know, as a neuroscientist and understanding brain-mind connection and the nature of reality, there was no way not to come forward with my story. I had to do it because um, it really was just so absolutely compelling. When people hear the word surrender or let go or accept, I think a lot of people think that they're just going to be a doormat in life. Like it's like a passivity statement. Like you just sit down and like let a tiger eat you or something, right? That's not what, what you mean at all. When you say surrender, you're, what are you surrendering to? What you're surrendering to is kind of the purpose of the universe and kind of the ultimate purpose of your higher soul and its kind of allegiance with other souls in this process of growth through the one mind. Uh, and so that, that form of surrendering is actually a very powerful form of allowing the free will of your higher soul to start to intervene. Uh, you know, we often talk about free will, uh, and I would say that anything that you call free will associated with that lowest egoic mind, mm. the egotistical kind of linguistic brain side of us, uh, is very misleading. That's often an automatonic response to things. That's where uh, kind of our nature nurture set us up to automatically respond like a, like a robot to the various challenges in life. Whereas this kind of vision of the higher soul and looking at uh, challenges and hardships as gifts and stepping stones uh, is much more aligned with one of growth and of allowing the universe to share its wisdom with us and allow us to manifest that in the emerging reality that we sense as human beings. So that letting go can be a very powerful ally, that sense of trusting in the universe, that the universe loves us deeply and will take care of us. To me, my life for the 12 years since coma has been a perfect example of that. I believe when we're open and authentic uh, in a heartfelt way with the universe, the universe rewards us back with growth, understanding, comprehension, alignment, harmony, uh, and, and kind of a deep satisfaction with our purpose in life. Well, Dr. Eben Alexander, thank you so much for being on here today. I want to thank you for sharing your story and for sharing it over the last 12 years and all the work that you will do from here on out. So thank you so much. We'll link all of the uh, information that you dropped on here, your books, the links, um, and everything else that needs to in the show notes. So thank you so much for being on today. Well, thank you, Adam. And I would just also encourage any of your listeners who want to keep up with us, there's a free webinar that Karen and I do every other week and have been for more than a year, and we have a lot of interesting guests. Awesome. You can access that at unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Uh, so look forward to seeing people there. And uh, thank you very much for what you're doing, Adam, uh, You know, opening up this world, and especially the business world, to a much richer uh, kind of future of, of kind of cooperation, collaboration, uh, and benefit for the world. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. 
Hey, thanks for hanging today. Um, we are super excited to launch a four-part series about consciousness at work. So every Tuesday, it's going to drop in your inbox, not your mailbox, your inbox. And the four-part series is really going to address uh, you know, how do you bring consciousness to work? I know it's the title of it, but like people want to know how he, you know, how do you bring consciousness, you know, when you're firing somebody, right? Or you're getting bad news delivered to you, right? So we're going to really address these in part one. We're going to talk about how and why it's important to have consciousness at work, period. What does that even really mean? Part two is imposter syndrome, the fraud that can show up there, like thinking when you start to become a bigger leader, like what does that look like? And I don't really feel like I have a job and then like, what is my worth, right? And then the ego and really letting go of that. Part three is conscious communication and decision-making. I mean, you're making decisions every single day, emails and communication. What does that look like? And then part four is conscious leadership. And so if you're interested, Hallie, where do people go to sign up for this of course? Yeah, so for more information, you can go to adamhergenrother.com slash consciousness at work or make sure you're subscribed to our podcast, Business Meets Spirituality, wherever you like to listen to your podcast so that every week you will be notified when the new episode drops.